Hey, this is Larry Romano, and you are listening to What a Character, the podcast dedicated to character actors. Hey everyone, this is C. Thane Dixon, and on today's episode of What a Character, I will be interviewing Jake Busey. In our interview, Jake will talk about how he helped his father overcome drug addiction, why he got yelled at by Paul Verhoeven on the set of Starship Troopers, and how he got a career boost from legendary filmmaker John Milius. It's all that and more on today's episode of What a Character. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, before we get on with the show, I just want to tell you all about how you can help make this podcast a smash hit. As many of you may know, the success of a podcast all depends on the support of the audience. A good number of subscriptions, likes, and listens can help us attract high-profile guests, thus making the podcast a success. So let's say that you enjoy this show and you want us to make more episodes. Well, you can help us make that possible by subscribing to us and leaving reviews on podcast platforms such as Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher, by liking and subscribing to us on YouTube, or by following us on social media. You can find the links to our YouTube channel as well as our various social media feeds in the episode description. And if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe. Your help will be greatly appreciated. Now, on with the show. Our guest today is a man who has done everything from haunt people to kill giant alien bugs, and he's even fought against a horde of vampires. He started acting at the very young age of five, acting alongside his father, Gary Busey, in the 1978 film Straight Time. Later on, when he was in his teens, he decided to start studying acting, and he eventually took drama classes at Santa Barbara College. After college, he moved to Los Angeles, where he gained roles in a number of independent features. But it was in 1985 where he gained his first notable role in a motion picture film. This film was the 1996 Peter Jackson horror film, The Frighteners. And because of the success of his role in this film, he went on to nab prominent roles in such big films as Twister, Contact, Starship Troopers, Enemy of the State, and Tomcats. In 1999, he gained his first regular TV role in the UPN sitcom Shasta McNasty. Yes, there was actually a TV show called Shasta McNasty. Most recently, he has been seen as a regular on such shows as From Dust Till Dawn, the series, Freakish, LA's Finest, and Stranger Things. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Jake Busey. Hello! <laughs> Jake, Jake, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. You know, several years ago, I'm, I'm sitting watching TV and watching an episode of Psych. You know, I used to love that show. Yeah. And um, I see in the guest star credits that Jake Busey is going to be in it. And I'm thinking, great. You know, Jake hasn't been in anything recently. And you know, I love them in Starship Troopers. I love them in The Frighteners. You know, it's great to see him make a comeback. And then the, you show up and you, you barely had any lines. And I thought, well, that's kind of a waste of Jake Busey. 
when's he going to make a comeback? And now recently you're in Stranger Things, From Dust Till Dawn, all these shows, and, and you've had sort of a career renaissance. Yeah, I suppose. Um, there, for me, you know what? I've really never gotten over the very initial nerves and jitters of the audition process that you have when you, you first start when you're young mm -hmm. you first start auditioning um and there was a period of time where i started doing well which gave me a, a pretty good amount of confidence and i wasn't so nervous and i would and then i started really having you know good batting average for mm -hmm. for those um and that's the period of time that you you saw a lot of me and um very i guess i'm very reactionary to my environment or stimuli in my environment um so um i did a couple of shows that may have you know not landed or whatever mm -hmm. and questionable i did a film that was a lot of pretty much like most of the films that i've been in especially during that time period, the late nineties, mm -hmm. they, they all, they all had huge hype around them. Like the right. frighteners was like, this is going to be the next big thing since sliced cheese. Right. Um, because Peter Jackson was coming off of having the creatures and, and right. they put a bunch of money into his whole studio and everything. And Bob Zemeckis universal. And it was, you know, quite a big deal. Um, and so we were all thinking, geez, you know, this is going to be great. We got Michael J. Fox, D, we got John Aston and, and Jeffrey Combs and a whole variety of, of people. And um, it would have been a huge smash tentpole, giant success summer or, you know, it, movie event. But the, the studio got so excited about it that they chose to make it their summer tentpole blockbuster thing, which was a big a big uh slogan a big mistake the uh the tentpole movie yeah and it was a mistake because they, what they did is they opened it july 19th which was the opening day of the olympic games in atlanta georgia so nobody went and saw a horror film in the middle of the summer when the olympics on the olympic weekend um but that's that's kind of one of the issues that that uh the film studios can have is it can be a, a bit myopic, in my opinion, where they, you know, they're. It's almost so ancestral they don't really, they don't take notice in like everything else that's going on outside of their own industry, um, and and forget about like, oh, geez, yeah, the Olympics are that weekend, um, which I think that's the thing of the past. Uh, the internet happened and culture has changed, and uh, I think I think our whole way of doing things is differently. But, you know, so there was, so that movie was not a giant opening weekend film. And uh, it became a cult classic, which, hooray, fantastic, great movie. Glad I was a part of it. Um, and one of my best life experiences. Really tremendous. And I'm so thankful that I got to do it. Um, it um, become part of my life, you know, the memories from that and the experience during when I was there and. It was just incredible. I got to fly on wires for the first time, you know, in the studio. I did blue screen stuff for the first time. Now it's green screen, but back then it was blue screen. And 
that was the most difficult acting work I'd ever done. And um, so the succession of those, I did a bunch of films like every year that were supposed to be the next big thing. And they, they always had something that would go amiss. Like Starship Troopers got banned or it didn't get banned, but they, there was a, somebody made a big deal about the rating and uh, that it, it really um, should be an NC-17, not even an R. They wanted it to, they wanted to give it this crazy, terrible rating. So in the midst of all that arguing, and this is of course the year after the Frighteners. No, it was actually the same. Was it the same? It was a year after the Frighteners. I don't recall. Don't quote me. But um, we shot the Frighteners in 95. We shot Troopers in 96. But I think that the Frighteners took longer with the, the graphic effects. And so I think they both might have come out in the same year. But anyway, Starship Troopers, they banned the target audience from coming. So if you were under 18, you couldn't see Starship Troopers. Uh, and they put up flyers and posters. And I was shooting Enemy of the State in Baltimore. My girlfriend and I were walking by the movie theater and we, we saw the big, you know, the movie theaters are just big glass frontages, right? Just nothing but a big glass wall with posters. And so there was all these flyers and it was like uh, no admittance to Starship Troopers without a valid ID. So they, they killed our opening weekend with that. So I, I, I wound up in an interesting conundrum when I was doing all these big movies that were supposed to be uh, huge and then they just kind of really didn't hit the mark exactly. But they've become cult classics, which is fantastic. Like Identity, that I think that one was number one. We performed very well with that movie. I think it was number one for a few weeks. Um, it's fun to look back and think about those shows uh, but it, it never works out exactly how you plan, and that's the way life is, right? It's just the way it works. Right, right. That, that's that's just the complicated thing about making movies. You could have the greatest movie ever made, but if you don't get that great word of mouth ahead of time, it can it can hurt. Yeah, yeah, and it's amazing how how fast word of mouth spreads. Um, like Tom Katz, you mentioned right. Tom Katz. That that film, they put so much money into the 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 P and A of that, that film, the prints and advertising and all the billboards, there wasn't a billboard in LA or a bus bench or anything that could have ad space in LA that didn't have a Tomcats poster. My girlfriend and I, at the time, actually we drove around LA and took just in one area and, and took a whole photo albums worth of pictures of all the different billboards, bus stops, bus benches, walls like it, it was incredible how like you just couldn't go anywhere without seeing tomcats advertisements and our opening night was okay and then it, it nobody saw the movie the rest of the weekend it was the word of mouth spread like instantly that that you know people didn't want to see that and 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 the type of comedy that people wanted to go watch changed that year there was a big shift from a certain style of comedy to a new style. So Tomcats was of like an older ilk of like the American Pie movies and some of those other um, late teens, early 20s kinds of shows. And then Tomcats failed. And then what hit really big right after it was um, 
oh, what was the, is it super bad? Right, super, right. So the new Judd Apatow, that whole, like a whole new spin flavor and the whole new look um, hit right at that time. And it was like, oh, okay. So there's a big shift in culture going on in our movie. I thought it would have been better had they done it like originally they shot it, which was more like what they sold it as, like more of a TNA thing. Like they had Shane and Elizabeth from American mm-hmm. Pie and all, that whole thing, which I already mentioned. But um, Jamie Presley and, you know, Jerry O'Connell, the, the girls seemed to love him. And so rather than making it like a sexy film or a sexy, silly film, they really went off the deep end with like a gross out thing with my testicle and this, mm-hmm. this whole thing that was, um, and then they didn't, they didn't deliver a lot of stuff that we actually did shoot. Uh, if you saw the movie Tomcats, my character has a bachelor party scene and there's a bunch of strippers and it's like in Vegas and it's in a hotel uh, suite and uh, which actually was just a house on the beach in Malibu. But uh, so we're supposedly in this hotel suite in Vegas at the Hard Rock and um and there's probably 15 girls that are like dancing around the rooms, this big party. And, uh, and they did, they shot most of it with the girls naked. And at the very end of the day, they said, let's do one take and let's put their clothes on. Right. Mm-hmm. So that for like the TV of, edit, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I knew better. I was like, uh Oh, okay. So that's the way this is going. And you know, mind you, as we speak about this right now, I, 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 in today's culture, I probably sound like a heathen. But back then, people were different. People were more free. People were more, I don't know. It was just more of a raucous gener- generation. It was a, our Generation X people were just more like anything goes. Nobody got butt hurt or felt like they had to cancel anyone. It was just right. kind of just, you know, be rowdy and fuck the man and like all that stuff. Um, so it definitely like it, today's kids would be re- like, you could never release that movie today. It would never, oh, no, no. everyone would be so offended. at like pretty much every single frame of that movie. Um, but at the time, what sold was like, you know, the whole TNA thing, which uh, again, American Pie proved and like Porky's and a bunch of other mm-hmm. films through the eighties that, you know, but it was, uh, yeah. So they shot the one safety with the, okay, just in case we'll, we'll put the bikinis on the girls. So basically what they did is they moved it. They made the movie very safe during a time when people were still wanting to push the envelope and still looking for the next. And that, and then super bad comes out and you're watching super bad and you're just like, Oh my God, I can't believe they said that. Um, and it was far more raunchy than our film, but um, times change. So uh, I, I did have a good time on that movie. That was that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Now you you were with your dad a lot of times uh, during his career on the film sets and when he was in the the studio. What what are your favorite moments? You know, being wow. on the film set and, and being in the music studio. Yeah, that's that. Well, our family was together the whole time, right? It was uh, Mm -hmm. my mom and dad and me and he was working and my mom and I would do other things. So like, you know, when we were, he was doing a movie in in Minnesota and we were, of course, living in a hotel in Minneapolis and 
you know, we'd go to museums and parks and explore the city. And I would have a, you know, we'd do a homeschooling type of jam. Um, and, and then of course would spend a lot of time on, on the set and watching them. And looking back on things, I realized that I, I, I had the benefit of watching a bunch of brilliant directors and actors growing up. I mean, just watching it all happen like right in front of me. And I got to be, you know, in the front row of a lot of great performances and meeting just a ton of great people. I could relate to adults better, a lot better when I was a little kid than, than I could relate to kids. I had a hard time in actual school because I spent so much time just around adults in like a working environment that I didn't really know how to associate with other just like just normal kids. It was, uh, it, it proved to be frustrating at times, but I had a group of friends that were uh, similar to me in circumstance. And, and those were my friends that I've, you know, bonded with and was able to relate to when home. But yeah, we were uh, on the road. I think the first, show that they took me to i was two months old and i was in jackson mississippi which obviously don't remember that uh my earliest memories though um my dad did a nascar film with jeff bridges and uh that was like 1974 Mm -hmm. world's greatest hero yeah was it world's greatest hero or thunderbolt and lightfoot Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Okay. I don't think my, well, my dad did another movie called The Last American Hero. That's the one I'm thinking of, yeah. I think I was really young on that. Um, I don't, and I could be confusing the two of those movies. Um, but yeah, and then, and then uh, the movie that they threw me in, Straight Time, I was five. And that was a matter of Dustin Hoffman was like, hey, he's like, you know, what if your character has a kid? to my dad and my dad said well you know we can use my son and so they screen tested me with another kid the two of us we did they don't call them screen tests anymore it's basically an audition but they they did like an improv scene dustin had a little setup with a casting deal and lights and a camera and stuff in a hotel in uh, in la and um i i don't even uh remember what it was that i did that was all that special but uh I made them laugh a lot. So they put me in the movie and that was fantastic. Um, so we've really had a good time with Dustin and Kathy Bates played my mom and she's <laughs> such a sweet lady. And um, so that was my first time working. And I remember was being, I was with my mom and it was lunchtime and we leave the, the stage. We walk out of the stage door and I'm in my wardrobe, which is basically just like my, fireman's pajamas i was five right so fireman's pajamas in a robe and slippers um and we're walking across warner brothers and it's like a back lot of of a sort of like um a neighborhood like american beauty just you know mid-century houses and we're headed toward the restaurant and there's all these dudes that are like construction guys and painters and people riding bikes, messengers and golf carts going by and all that stuff. And the guys with their work belts and hammers hanging off. And I suddenly felt very emasculated. And I turned to my mom. I said, geez, you know, this is, I'm, I'm wearing like fireman's pajamas out here walking in the street. And there's all these, you know, big brawny 
dudes and I feel kind of listen. I, I feel like I should put on my clothes, you know? And she said, no, no, don't worry about that. It's okay. Like it, it, it clearly is wardrobe, which means you're an actor and that's, that's a great thing. And I was like, Oh yeah, I guess so. Yeah. This whole acting thing is kind of nifty and it's okay to walk around in my pajamas, which I still do to this day. <laughs> Are you wearing your pajamas now while we're doing this interview? Uh, oh, I should be. Uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. So at what point did you realize, okay, uh, acting is really what I want to do, and this is something I really should focus on? Oh, well, that was, I think you mentioned it at the beginning, that was uh, my first year of college. And uh, I took an acting class, and it was very odd to me. Um, mm having grown up on film sets uh, and that whole world, I took this acting class and, and it was basically the, the, the teacher had us doing, uh, okay, you know, crawl on the ground, you're a snake. I mean, it was like a Saturday Night Live sketch, you know, okay, you're a snake. And so you lay on the ground uh, and there was really no stage in the theater. There was bleachers, but no stage. So you're just on the floor, a black floor. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she was one of these beatnik New York types wearing all black with the turtleneck all the time. And, mm -hmm. and I, I didn't really, so then there would be times like, okay, now you're sitting at a dinner table and uh, clearly there's nothing around you. You just have to pretend that you're, that there's a table there. And uh, mm -hmm. she's like, okay, you're, you're alone and you're waiting for your date to arrive. So what are you, what are you doing while you're waiting for your date? So, you know, you see these people and they're moving their hands around like they're they're moving a salt and pepper shaker or adjusting their napkin or whatever. And it was kind of interesting. But to me, I didn't seem like that was what I was going for. Mm -hmm. um, and so for the final exam, after doing this for a semester, uh, the teacher hands out um, monologues to everyone, like page long or ha half a page, three quarters of a page somewhere in there monologues and she said okay here you go here's your monologues we're gonna have a dress rehearsal uh next monday and then you'll do your final on wednesday and i thought to myself this doesn't go together we haven't done any work toward memorization or any kind of acting whatsoever other than like being a snake on the ground um and so there i was winging it just flying by the seat of my pants and she says, okay, you know, now, Jake, it's your turn. Show us what you prepared over the weekend. So I do my monologue, and it was something, you know, it was a, I believe it was a Sam, Sam Shepard play. And um, this guy professing about his, his first experience with, um, with a, a, a girl and um, relating it to a, a, natural, a national monument. Um, and... Uh, so very impassioned and I did that. And then there was a girl in the class that uh, I had a crush on uh, and just a sweet, quiet girl. Didn't really say much. I don't even remember her name, but she was really cute. And um, I thought she was something special, but I was pretty shy. And uh, so then she went and then the teacher gave everybody went, everyone did their thing. I thought she was pretty good. And, and she came back. She's, and, and when the teacher announced who was going, when, and all that for the final exam, what the order was, the teacher said my name and then her name, like right on the heels of mine. And, and I happened to be sitting near her 
not that I ever really talked to her. And she kind of gasped and like a sigh, like, oh, shit, when the teacher said her name. I said, what's wrong? And I was like, well, I get to talk to this girl. I said, what's wrong? And she said, I don't want to go after you. You're the best one in the class. And I, of course, did not think that. I had never thought about it. I, you know, and, uh, and it just kind of hit me. Like someone punched me in the chest with this elation. Like I was like, oh, my God. The cute girl thinks I'm good to the point where she sighed and said, oh, shit. And um, so anyway, long story. Sorry about that. But that was the moment where I went home. And I kind of served it to my place in college. I went to my college little house and looked around and thought about my overall experience. And I was like, I, I, I'm, I'm wasting time. I'm wasting my youth. I need to get back to LA, take vocational classes, real acting classes, you know, hmm. and get to business. And I, and I talked to my parents and they said, well, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll make that. You'll, you'll come back to LA. And instead of going to college courses five days a week, you'll go to acting courses five days a week. So that's what I did for about three years. And then I started auditioning about, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, about a year into that, maybe. And after three years of auditioning um, and going to those classes, um, I finally booked a PBS movie. And that was the first thing. I was 21 or two years old. And it was a small role. But uh, yeah, that was that was the beginning of, of, of my <clears throat> journey with this. And um, I should have, in hindsight, I should have asked for favors from my dad or whatever. Uh, and he had offered on occasions to help right um but i i didn't I, I didn't want any help from him because i i i really wanted to make sure that i arrived on my own merit and not because someone got a favor so it took me three years of auditioning three or four times a week for anything commercial tv movie whatever i could get my hands on that my agent would provide. And um, so it was a long journey and I was definitely not your average looking kid. So it, it took a lot to, it, it, take, it takes a unique filmmaker to, to look at me and say, he would work in this movie. Um, I, when I was young, I was very tall, very thin, very gaunt, very white with a long white hair and, you know, wound up working for contact. Um, and I, you know, yeah, but, but it was, um, it had, it had, it, it, I've, I've, I've had a, a hard time for most of it because I'm, I don't look like your average person. And, uh, so I kind of always stand out, which some could say is a benefit, but I was also kind of, you know, I'm kind of, nerdy and dorky anyway so but it's uh i've been fortunate to work as much as i have I'm thankful for that 
Now, your father has said in interviews that you helped him kick his drug habit and that you also helped him recover from the motorcycle accident. How did you help your father overcome this hurdle in his life? Well, pretty much my whole childhood, we, we the, you know, my mom and I were trying to get him to quit partying so much. And um, it was hard because he had been nominated for the Academy Award. And, and that was by portraying a guy who was a rock star. My dad started out as a musician. Mm-hmm. So I think in his mind, he was like, great, I'm going to parlay this into becoming a rock star. Meanwhile, every studio making a movie was throwing scripts at him. He, our dining room table, we didn't eat at the dining room table because it was covered in stacks and stacks <laughs> of scripts. And he refused to, to work. He, um, he chose to write songs and he built a soundproof studio in the house. Mm-hmm. And he basically spent all of his time with his friends um writing and playing music in in our house and then when he wasn't doing that he would he'd be at one of the local little recording studios in malibu and he was friends with everybody that was a musician and he would sit in and play at the local little tavern that everyone the only place everyone would congregate because it was thirteen thousand people in the town it was a very small town and so he basically spent his 30s doing drugs and trying to become a rock star um and then we would we'd run out of money and he would he would quickly he'd say to my mom like okay which which is the best script and the most money and she'd say well i read this i kind of like this and he'd take a look at it and and he'd call his manager and figure out what the money they were offering and you know whichever one made the most he'd take it and uh and then he you know he, so he worked like once a year but he made enough money being not academy award nominated you know so we'd be good for another year and then he would just he'd write songs and party in his, his studio and 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 that was there was some great times in there and great memories but it was also chaos i mean when you're mm-hmm. a kid growing up in an environment where there's tons of adults coming in and out of your house at all hours of the day all the time and they're all like these eccentric musicians and all of them are high on Coke and they haven't slept in a week. And mm-hmm. so they stink and they talk too much and you, their eyes are all dilated and bugged out. And, um, it's, it's not a, like a normal, normal way to, to raise a kid. Um, but my mom, she, she was amazing because she didn't drink or smoke or any party or anything like that with those guys, which ultimately, I think, was the, the demise of their relationship, which wound up being a much better thing, I think, for both of them. I was so relieved when they mm-hmm. got divorced when I was 16. It was like, finally, after all these years, after like, you know, eight years of insanity, uh, thank God some peace but um so how did how did i help get him sober it was you know there was pretty much my teens were spent like we would always go on trips to try and like get him to sober up or you know uh rehab kind of thing we took him to some big rehab places like uh 
you see in that TV show, Californication. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so there was a lot of that. And then I think ultimately he hit a point where he just couldn't continue the path that he was on. And he had a revelation of some sorts. And then he bounced back. He got himself, he was amazing. He got himself back on his feet. He did Lethal Weapon. It was the first movie that he had auditioned for since the 70s. Um, and that, that really got him going. And then by then, then I started auditioning for things. And I'd worked a little bit. And I was reading for bigger movies. And um, smaller roles, but big movies right so i went in and did an audition for point break to play one of the surfers Hmm. and the casting after i was done with my scene the casting director went huh that's pretty good what's your dad up to and uh i said i i don't know you know give him a ring he's gary Busey, and casting directors he's like yeah okay yeah he'd be great for the detective i said yeah he probably would yeah i'm sure he'd love to do it and so he's like you know Nancy, call Gary Busey, you know, get hold of Gary Busey. So I got him that job, which was cool. And then, um, and then I went and I auditioned for another show, a Steven Seagal movie called Under Siege. And it was to play like this, like a, you know, this bad guy, pirate, kind of one of the, one of the henchmen kind of dudes. Mm. And um, the same thing, the casting director says, that was that was good. That was interesting, Jake. You know, uh, what's your dad doing? And uh, <laughs> you know, and clearly they weren't trying to go through me to get to him because you know they're big casting directors and big studio films. But it's just, I guess, you know, I reminded them that he he was around because he had had a little bit of a break because he had had the you know the problems with the drugs and the alcohol and stuff. So, um, and then the la- these were all right in a row. So then after that was a movie called Drop Zone with Wesley Snipes. And it was like parachuting dudes in the right. Miami. And uh, that was a cool movie. And, and so the same thing happened. It was great job, Jake. What's your dad up to? And the great thing was I was young at that point, right? I was like 18, 19. Mm-hmm. Well, more like 19, 20, I guess. For the Under Siege. And yeah, for all of those, I was I guess those two came before Point Break. Mm-hmm. Bear with me, folks. I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> but uh, so he, he brought me with him. So when he was doing Under Siege, we both went down to Alabama where the, the ship was in the harbor mm-hmm. uh, that they filmed on. And I, I spent the whole time with him there like I did, like I had done when I was a little kid. It seemed like a lot of time had passed. Funny how it is when we're young, when we're kids, you know, like summertime seems like forever. Uh, and years, everything gets faster as years go by. So, um, yeah. And then on uh, on Drop Zone, went down to the Florida Keys where he was shooting that. Did, did I wish I was in those movies? Yeah. But I knew I was just starting out and I was glad that he got it because, or he got those films because, mm-hmm. uh you know, he's amazing. So, uh, so yeah, you know, um, I guess that's one of the ways I helped him get back on his feet, I suppose. Um, 
And then in 1988, he was like jamming. And I guess that's Lethal Weapon had come out and he was hanging out with Arnold uh, and uh, and Stallone and another guy who's not with us anymore. And uh, and then my, and my dad's manager, a fellow who um, produced the miniseries that I did called Texas Rising, um, the Western with Bill Paxton and Jonathan Sheck and all all the guys, Thomas Jane, I think. Was it? Um, but anyway, so those guys were hanging around a lot. They were riding. They all got their Harleys together. They were smoking cigars together. My dad was in the club. because you know, was mm-hmm. Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Busey, Sharky, and those. And they did the whole love ride thing with the the Hell's Angels and the, you know, it was it was great. And then he, he crashed, and that was before the Helmet Law in California, and um, he had a very bad accident. He was in a coma, and he almost died. And um, it took a few months be- before he came out of that. And um, so that was my senior year in high school, I guess, because I almost didn't graduate my second semester because it was around Christmas. So the uh, the whole second semester of my senior year was just in the rehab hospital rehabbing him not for drugs but teaching him how to talk teaching him how to feed himself i mean when he woke up out of the coma he was lifeless just you know he was just mm-hmm. just sitting there in a wheelchair and drooling and he could you know he couldn't move anything he was it was he was gone as they uh, used to say like he was a vegetable right i mean he just there was nothing happening um but we got him we you know with stimulus and basic exercises that the hospital had the, the rehabilitation place for head injuries um i tell you what <laughs> if you want to make sure you never have a a brain buster and crack your head open go hang out at a head injury rehabilitation place and meet some of the patients that are recovering some of the people who are in car crashes or a bmx kid that didn't have his helmet on met this one kid broke my heart he was he was probably 16 years old and, you know, he had crashed on his bike and he was like an aggressive BMX. I think he already had tattoos and he was, uh, you know, he was like, I could tell he was like a hardcore cat. But when I met him, he was trying to learn how to speak and trying to learn how to walk. And it was hard to, it was really hard to see that. And I've ridden motorcycles my whole life. And, and um, in fact, I've got a motorcycle company that I'm, we're launching an electric motorcycle and um, the parent company's Jake's, Jake's Motor Company, but it's, um, we're, our bike is the Electrocycle. And so it's, it's going to be a medium, light, light to medium weight retro bike, but, um, but electric and super fast. And we are, we've already got a prototype. It's going to be amazing. So that's my pitch for my bike company, Jake's Custom Motorbikes. But um, I always wear a helmet. And I'm thankful that my dad came back around and he was able to do all those big movies and continue on and then become an infamous reality, uh, you know, personality. Um, he, uh, I remember when I was I was young, probably I, I, yeah I think I was probably twelve or thirteen, sitting at the dinner table, and he was in the height of his cocaine skirt chasing, 
fueled just nut, nutty, nutty times. But he's, he's a brilliant man. And my grandfather was a brilliant man. He was an engineer with the Navy, with the Seabees. My grandfather built all the bases and runways and engineered all that shit in World War II <laughs> in the South Pacific. Um, so there is like a, a lot of smarts on the Busey side. And I think that's what got him through his brain injury. Because he already had like a turbocharged mind. He, my dad is so talented and such a fast thinker and a, such a master manipulator and reader of people. He's like a mentalist. Um, he, he, just incredible. Not so much anymore, but he was. And um, so, so he, um, the mentalist thing, uh, speaking of which, that, what was my point? I was headed towards something. What were we talking about? Talking about my dad. Oh, yes. So 13 years old or something, I'm at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. And it's these partying years and all that. And he says, hey, I got to. Now, remember, the world revolves around him. <laughs> so he, he says, hey, I got a great idea for a TV show. Now, this is 1984. Mm -hmm. And he says, what we do is we get a, a camera crew to just follow me around. 24 hours a day. Wow. And just document my life. <laughs> and I just, I shook my head. I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. That's, that sounds great. Sounds very humble, dad. Very <laughs> humble. And, um, who, who would know that it would become the medium that everybody loves now is just watching people in their daily lives. Um, with the reality shows and stuff. And then he went on to do uh, the uh, well, Big he Brother. The, he did the rehab show, Celebrity Rehab. He did UK's Big Brother. And he did the um, Celebrity Apprentice thing, which is, uh, which is why, uh, you know, People associate him politically with uh, with the, the guy that ran that show, and mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> that whole thing hasn't helped me one bit. I I mean, yeah, that's that's been that's a tough one because I look just like him, so people assume that I I'm just a carbon copy of it. So. I, I don't know. I don't see how people can say that because your your screen presence and your voice and everything is is, is quite different from your father. Uh, well, I'll take that as a compliment. Thank, and I love him. I think he's one of the most talented people to ever walk the earth. But I I do appreciate that because a lot of people just like you know think I'm a Xerox copy. Well, it sounds like you were the most stable thing in his life through all those tough times. Well, really, my mom was, but I mm -hmm. was there as a as a sidekick helper. Yeah, you got to work with John Milius on an episode oh. of Rebel Highway. What, what do you remember about working with him? Firstly, remember I said I auditioned for three years and then finally did a PBS thing. Mm -hmm. Well. The, the timing is such, yeah, the PBS thing was such a lackluster experience and so small and right. 
you know, it was, it, there was no, it wasn't like, yeah, here I am. You know, it, it was, was like, like really cheap and everything. Very, very community playhouse kind of mm-hmm. thing. The great thing was I got to fly to Iowa, but really I, on, on a Friday afternoon, I, I had auditioned for this rebel highway movie, the motorcycle gang thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, probably early in the week and then it was friday and i hadn't heard anything back and i said to my friend lucy fleetwood her dad mick fleetwood drummer from of who is fleetwood mac right Mm -hmm. so we're at his house and one night it was like a friday night we're playing pool and hanging out like a couple friends and uh my dad and mick were really really close when i Mm -hmm. I was growing up and um so i i remember saying to, to lucy i remember saying you know what um I'm going to go join the Coast Guard on Monday if I don't hear back about this, this last audition because I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm killing myself. Three years, uh, the one little PBS thing for, for four days worth of work for no money. And it was just like, clearly this isn't for me. And lo and behold, that night, Friday night, at, like late because Hollywood doesn't stop working. It was like nine o'clock on a Friday night, mm-hmm. um, I, my agent called me and said, Hey, Showtime just made an offer for you for that motorcycle gang thing. I was like, Oh my God, Holy shit. <laughs> and, and yeah, so we had a great Friday night. Um, I was so excited and elated. Oh, it was just so fun. And, um, and that John Milius hiring me for that movie is what um kept me from just joining the coast guard to fly helicopters that was that was what my deal was i've always i'm a pilot i finally became a pilot but i've always loved helicopters and um really the only way to do it is military because it's cost prohibitive um so that's i figured well if i want to fly helicopters i'm gonna join the coast guard and, and um i grew up in a place where i saw those coast guard helicopters flying by every day and i was like i want to be in that so um, it didn't wind up that way, though. I wound up just closest I got to the Coast Guard was the mobile infantry, Starship Troopers. Hoorah! <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Starship Troopers, what do you remember about training under Dale Dye? Um, training with Captain Dale Dye was incredible. We were in the military. And we were in the, the mobile infantry, 100%. By the end of that boot camp, you couldn't tell us we weren't. I mean, we, he, he whipped us all into gear. And so, you know, what comes along with it is conviction and commitment and the desire to be a part of it. And my dad had done a film called Cadence. Uh, a couple of years prior and Martin Sheen, Marty Sheen directed it and Charlie was in it. And um, Lawrence Fishburne, he was very young. Everyone's a lot younger than I was 17 at that point in 1988. So eight years later, I'm doing Starship Troopers and Captain Dale Dye, who I'd met when I was 17. And I went down to watch him training. Like Char- I flew up with Charlie and two guys from Motley Crue, uh, Tommy and Nikki, and we were all in the back of first class together, smoking mm. on the way to Canada. And we get there, just smoking. 
uh, well, on the airplane, like cigarettes, you know, <laughs> right, I mean? right, right. And um, I, I'm just surprised you with Charlie and the Motley Crew guys. It was just smoking. I was just I oh, found that kind of yeah. humorous. <laughs> <laughs> right. So yeah, good. you know, that was uh, it was a while back because you could smoke cigarettes on the airplane. So um, being 17 and, and, and impressionable, I was excited to go up there. And I, because of my dad, like you know the story from earlier, I grew up with a recording studio in the house. And so I played drums. I started before I can remember. And that's <laughs> really been my, my thing. And um, so very much an audiophile. There was this moment, like I remember <laughs> I had a brand new. So Charlie sitting next to me and he goes, care for some rating material and he hands me like a penthouse and a hustler <laughs> magazine and i was like oh, I'm, I'm good i'm good i'm good and i and i had a walkman that was uh, a disc man which back then it was, you know it was a cd with headphones right mm -hmm. and um jimmy page led zeppelin guitarist he had come out with a new solo album um and i think it was um David Coverdale was singing, perhaps. Got it. Anyway, great, great album, Outrider. Mm -hmm. And um, so Tommy Lee leans over the aisle to me and he goes, hey, hey, what do you, what do, what do you got there? What is that? And I said, oh, it's a disc man. He's like, no shit. I haven't seen one of those. But yeah, you put the CD in and it's pretty cool. He's like, right on. Hey, who is that? I thought it's Jimmy Page's new solo album. He goes, oh, wow. Can I check it out? I was like, yeah, Tommy Lee wants to check out my disc man in my head, you know? So I said, yeah, man, check it out. Fucker took my disc man, put on the headphones, and just rested the flight. Listened to the, the, the I was out of my music. He just listened to my, <laughs> my, like, the, you know, the, the, it, we had like two and a half hours left. So I just forfeited my music for the flight. So there I was, my only option, my music was gone. I could have read some porn. But then I, so I just sat there and watched it. if there was a movie on. I don't remember, but it was just, I was, it was funny to me. I, 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 and I remember thinking, I can't believe I'm here at this moment, you know? Uh, so after that moment, I land and I'm in Vancouver and we go way out in the country and I meet Captain Dale Dye in the bar with my dad. He invites me to come out and watch training the next day. And I go there and then the assistants and the people running the base, the army base that we were on said, oh, well, if you're going to watch, if you're going to be around, you've got to be in, or no, it was Marty Sheen. He was like, yeah, if you're going to go there, Camdale dies like a method dude. Like you can't just be in civilian clothes. Hmm. You, you got to put on a military BDUs, you know, you've got, you know, so I, okay. He goes, go buy wardrobe. They'll hook you up. So I went to found wardrobe and all that. And I'm standing on the curb. And here comes Captain Die with the platoon of guys running up. And, uh, and as they pass me, Captain Die sees me. He had met me, knew I was Gary's kid, tall and gawky, super white kid standing there with burning in the sun. And, um, all in private and so I, I was like Fuck, oh shit what and so then i wound up running with them and training with them and all that 
So when I saw him on Starship Troopers, it was a great reunion. It was, uh, it was super cool. And um, it, it was nice. It was like, uh, I, I'm so glad I had a previous relationship with him going into that film because I felt like I had a tough as nails mm-hmm. uncle who was there and I wasn't such a fish out of water. And I think it made me even more enthusiastic about doing it. So, um, and he's a good trainer, man. We got us our shots were, were accurate with our rifles. And then we would do knife throwing all the time. And in Starship Troopers, there's a gag where my character gets the knife in the hand. And, right. um, so he built that into the boot camp as part of our exercise because he knew everyone was going to be throwing knives in the movie for that scene. So every night we would have knife throwing contests. Well, my dad's buddy was a stunt guy by the name of Buddy Joe Hooker. And um, was he Clint Eastwood's stuntman? Yeah. Right. I believe so. Yeah. And a bunch of others. And he did a bunch of horse work. Great guy. And a legend in that in that industry, right? He right. started, he was one of the guys that started Stunts Unlimited. Hmm. And um so at Buddy Joe's house, when you closed his front door on the back side of it, he had a target and he had a bunch of throwing knives. So when I was a kid, we'd stop by his house and hang out in the afternoon. My dad's very social. He'd just go see his friends all the time, right? And take me with him. So I, you know, I I would just stand there and throw knives at the front door at Buddy Joe's house all the time. So we get to do it in Starship Troopers and we have these knife competitions. I hadn't said anything or thought about it. And we go to do the competition and I'm nailing every single one. It's like, from, I think he's a drummer. There's like a timing thing and a balance right. deal, like used to the sticks and, you know, how long it takes. I, for whatever reason it was, like, I couldn't miss. And so I won all those knife throwing competitions in, in boot camp. Maybe a couple I didn't. And Dina was good. I know she did good. Um, and then when it came time to shoot the, the scene where I miss at throwing the knife, mm-hmm. I wasted a lot of money, a lot of studio money, because I'm busy acting and I'm forgetting to, to miss the target. And so I'm just like on autopilot. My body's on autopilot, right? So then right. I go and throw the knife and it lands in the middle every damn time. And finally, Paul yelled at me. He's like, you, you, you have to get this right. There's too much <laughs> going on. And if you look at the movie, you can see, like, it's a huge crane shot that's got all these people training in the background and doing drills. And the camera settles on the whole lineup of people throwing knives. And they're, everyone's throwing. And it's all perfectly timed out with the crane and a dolly comes all the way around behind me settles as I throw the knife I'm supposed to miss. And it took 10 minutes to get everybody in their proper positions minimum. So you blow a take. It's like 20 minutes before you shoot again. Right. Right. So I got yelled at. And, and then I think one of the camera, I think the camera assistant said to me, he goes, Hey, just aim in your mind, aim like 10 feet behind the target. Like, oh, okay. All right. And then that was the one that you see in the movie where I missed finally. I finally missed. 
So little little Starship Troopers trivia for you. I always read that when they were training for Starship Troopers, they had to basically take two weeks of military training and compact into one because of the weather. Is that true? Or No, it was five weeks into three. Oh, okay. Yeah. We, we were, we did boot camp a long time. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was like three and a half weeks. And it was supposed to be more than that. Um, but what wound up happening was our very first night there, we go out to the middle of the nowhere, right where they were building um, the Clindathu set, which is Camp Curry. It's the big silver one that, you know, it's like, it's like the main thing in the movie, right? Where you see the bugs come over the hill and, they have to come rescue us and that's where they find Xander with his head or the guy, the keyboard with his head drilled out. Right. Um, and Marshall bell frozen in the freezer and that, that whole barrack, we're not barrack, but that whole rampart thing where we're the big tower. And mm-hmm. So we're out there in, in Wyoming in, in this hell's half acre area. And it's actually, a, they, they mine this, ore there that's this powder and it was called like it's not vermiculite we use vermiculite for fake dirt but it's like it was betonite betonite i think which is such a fine silt that they use it for dry lubricating oil rigs with the when they're drilling the shafts down Mm -hmm. so they mine this stuff that's why it looked like a foreign planet with all the colors and everything it's this interesting rock well when it gets wet it becomes like elephant snot. You cannot stand on it. It's like literally trying to stand on elephant slot, snot on ice. And uh, so our very first night, it's a snowstorm from hell. We get a blizzard come in at one o'clock in the morning. There's a whole lot. Of, you, you've probably read it in other trivia or something. There's, I've told the story a bunch, but. I really reinforced the the little hooch that Casper and I were sharing that we built with our rain ponchos. I made irrigation duct canal things and wind block and everyone was making fun of me because I was like Susie homemaker. And, um, and they, they were giving, you know, military kind of thing. Like what the hell's wrong with you? You know, you really going to town. What are you digging water trenches for? But, that night first night we get hit with this snowstorm and that was the infamous night where denise came in and stayed with us climbed in and i was so fucking cold it was like you're cold and you're in the sleeping blanket or sleeping bag and if you move at all Mm -hmm. the air shifts and you get that cold air and you're like oh (laughs) so bad so like i didn't want to move or anything and then she's like can i come in and sleep with one of you guys of course casper's like over here <laughs> and um and which is fine uh they're both a lot smaller than i am and uh, i certainly wasn't going to offer my space i was so cold and uh but we all all three of us made it through the night when we woke up in the morning we saw why denise had come down but actually i had looked out and i had seen we could it's actually like a hitchcock movie like i looked and i saw the opening of our tent and I saw Denise huddling 
and talking to us. And there's a big like work light up on the hill and it was shining on the area. And I saw one stick. It's like two feet long, an inch and a half diameter um, that you carry and you can use it to make a shovel or a bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. Everyone's got them in their packs. And so there was this one stick and then her poncho that you use to make the tent. So you use two of them, but there was just one of them on the stick, just blowing at an angle up into the air um, in, in the blizzard. And then the next day, like, oh, my God, we heard all these people moaning and crying and freaking out. And they're all wet and soaked and cold. And um, I was not laughed at again because ours was bulletproof and we were all dry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was cool. That was that was the one time where my little Busey engineering dorkiness paid off. <laughs> yeah. Now you've turned down many roles in films such as 12 Monkeys, Fight Club, and, and Zoolander. Uh, how difficult is, th- is it to tell from reading a script you know, how well a film is going to work or how successful it's going to be? Well, clearly for me, it's very difficult. Um, I, a lot of times I, I would look at something and I'd say, okay, well, what's the depth of the character? Mm-hmm. What, is, what is, you know, what's the what's the pleasure of playing this role? Like what, how satisfying is it going to be? And can I connect with it? And, uh, 12 monkeys. I mean, and it, those are two Fincher movies that are amazing. And it's like, Mm -hmm. that's talk about kicking yourself. Um, I, I felt like this is where being young and, having a little bit of success and you know uh a little bit of you're you're trying i don't know i can't blame it all on ego i just Mm -hmm. i did you know i didn't feel like okay for example enemy of the state Mm -hmm. i'm so glad i did that movie but i spoke with tony scott on the phone tony was calling me at my house and asking me to be in the movie and I was, I said, well, the character that you're offering me is not in the film. There is not a character named Krug in the film, in the script. There's not a page that says Krug. Now, this is a very, this is a young, inexperienced guy who, who thinks he knows a little something about something and doesn't know the bigger picture of I guess, art and life and the different ways different people do it. So Tony was came from the commercial world. And with commercials, a lot of it is, most of it's improv. And you're just, you're just getting what you get and catching the magic and using that. And so Tony was like, no, no, it doesn't matter that it's not on the page, mate. It's, we're going to do it. It's going to be awesome. You and Scotty Khan, it's going to be amazing. And, uh, and I was like, I just don't get it, man. I've got, look, I've got a Drew Barrymore movie coming out with Luke Wilson. I got Starship Troopers coming out the Frighteners. Like these were all in the can still. And they were all touted to be like these huge things. And I was like, I can't commit five months of my life to a movie where there's not even the character name in the script. I'd rather do a movie where I know that I can sink my teeth into a role. I know that I know what I'm going to do. 
So I hung up with Tony. And my agent called and goes, you know, well, what do you, what did you say to Tony? I said, I, I don't know. He said, well, they're frustrated with you over there. And the next day, Tony calls me again. And we talk some more. And he goes, okay, you know what? I'm going to send you over our pre-production stuff. I'm going to send you the photos and our, our locations. And, and he just he repitches me the whole movie and, oh, you know, all the conspiracy and all the stuff about the film. And so I said, okay. And he's like, you've got to do it, man. You've got to do it. Would you, I mean, just come on with us. And, you know, so they had like offered a certain dollar value. So now I hang up with him. My agent calls me and goes, I don't know what you said to Tony, but they've doubled the amount of money that they offered. And I said, well, geez, I don't want to, nothing there. There's no role. I don't know what to say. I mean, I really appreciate it, but I'd rather do something that there's, you know, there's a, a written scripted role. Mm-hmm. And um, the next day, Tony calls and says, did you get the material, man? Did you look at it? And I had, I'd gotten the packet. And it was all these pictures of, you know, what the movie ultimately would look like um, from like a storyboard and photos and location photos, kind of big, thick packet. You know, it was very impressive. And, and I said, yeah, but I just, there's no, character. You know, this is the idiot. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. I'm an idiot. I'm going, there's just no character, Tony. I don't get it. And he goes, he goes, take a look at him. Think about it. I'll call you later. And I said, okay, okay, okay. You got it. You got it. Let me hang out. And he's very sweet. Our phone calls and I talk to him at length each time, you know. Mm-hmm. My agent calls back. He goes, dude, I don't know what you're saying to Tony, but they've tripled your offer. Wow. So you really ought to think about doing this movie. And I saw the number. He told me the number and I was like, okay, yeah, tell Tony I'll do it. It's all good. And it sounds very, very shallow about the money and this and that and the other, but it was a learning lesson. And I learned that you, you know, doesn't have to be on the page like tony's whole thing was we're going to create it on the day we're gonna we're gonna get there and you guys are gonna be this part of this machine and and you're just this force this driving force and chasing after will and you're and um and then you know you you're an integral part of it at the end you you're the catalyst for this big mexican standoff shootout freaking mafia style bullet blazing thing and you know it was interesting to do something a movie like that and have it be like just so off the cuff like this is what you're doing you're gonna run okay see and he would draw a map of like we're in washington dc at this famous square that um where we were chasing is daniel zabitz jason lee and He's drawing his maps. You're gonna run here. You're gonna chase him there. You come around, and he's coming down a staircase, and there's steam everywhere. And you're gonna, you know, try and, you know, give him a pop on the head. And so, it was just one of the best experiences I'd ever had. And I really learned that uh, it's it's like the judge a book by its cover thing. But this book didn't even have words in it. But you know, trust the people too. And and I knew who I was talking to. I knew I was talking to the guy who. 
just come off of you know Top Gun and Days of Thunder and uh, you know the other films he'd done prior to Emmy State, and I you know just um I guess like I guess I really got lucky because it was one of the best filming experiences I've ever had. Now, consequently, I never worked for that production company again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah there is that but you know what they were they were catering to tony's artistic desires and it, it worked out i think we were great scott and i were great in the movie and, um it was it was a lot of fun and um it was fun to play with those those big those big guns man to be in a movie and say oh yeah it's i'm doing this movie with uh gene hackman and john Voight and will smith and tom sizemore and um you know, these big, these, you know, legendary performers. And that uh, was, it was a, if I could go back and do it over again, I'd do it three times. It was great. What do you remember about working with Gene Hackman? Nothing. Well, five months of being on that movie, mm -hmm. the longest conversation we had was I was, like, we never worked at the same time. They, they, alternated right good guys right. bad guys good guys bad guys mm -hmm. so i was done and i was walking back to warm up and get in my trailer maybe get some coffee and this is like one of those 14 degree sunny windy days in baltimore where the air is just crisp as a knife and it's like bitter chill in the air and but it's fall and it's pretty and but you're freezing with eight layers of clothes on so i'm walking back to get warm and 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 Gene has is walking out of makeup and headed to go work. Mm -hmm. There's nobody else around. We weren't really near each other. We were probably 15 feet apart as we passed. And uh, so it would be awkward not to say anything. We're close enough. It was just so. I was intimidated by the man. I had no idea how shy he was. And he barely, he barely looks up at me, but he just kind of does his hackman, just that little bit of a chin nod, right? And he goes, morning, kid. Good morning. <laughs> and that was our, that was my big Gene Hackman conversation. <laughs> that was it. And, uh, yeah, he, um, what an amazing, what an amazing, amazing person and talent. My God. To watch him and in, in uh, oh, so many of his movies, God, every one of them is amazing. So, him as a submarine captain, though, oh, devastating! Crimson it, Tide, you know? Yeah, yeah, he was great in that. Now, you got to work with the great Roland Joffe on the miniseries Texas Rising. What, what do you remember about working with uh, Mr. Joffe? He's great. He was a lot like Tony in his procedure. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that they're, they're both from relatively the same part of the world. Um, Roland was great. Such a sweet man, such a, such a kind soul and, and, and so into the performance, mm -hmm. so into the acting and the, the depth. I mean, it was really like working with a, you know, a master English play director, like 
that like doesn't get any more legit. Mm-hmm. And when I did my, when I showed up my first day and I was about to work, we hadn't really talked much, obviously, uh, just a little. And um, a very busy set, very big set, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of crew, a lot of actors. We just, I mean, it was giant. And, um, and they're very busy. And I walk down and, the, and the, the AD walks me up and somebody radios and says, you know, Jake's here kind of thing. And, and they brought me in to a little room in this, uh, it was like a, like a little Mexican um, Pueblo kind of thing that, you know, that uh, they were filming in. Sorry, my dog is trying to climb on me. <laughs> um, so, um, so there was like a little dirt floor room and they, they closed the big sliding wooden door and he was he, he at a desk and he's, he's sitting there and he goes, such a pleasure to meet you. And very, like you know proper shakes my hand and very very like um respectful and intimate with his hello and and um so let's talk about this let's talk about your character and we sat there and he talked to me he gave me 30 minutes of his pitch on what he saw as the character which left me thinking, my God, why have I not thought of anything near that in all this time that I've had between being cast and showing up here? But um, the, the insights he gave me were amazing. And we discussed it and had a little back and forth for a while. And he just, he, um, I, I, th- there are very few directors that are that passionate about the actors. And they're, and they're, and they're really disappearing. You know, there, 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 there are not very many of them left, um, which is sad. And I'm glad that I got to work with some of them. You know, the old school guys that are, um, they really care about the actors and the performance, and it's very much like theater. John Milius, one of them. Tony Scott, one of them. Roland Joffe, one of them. Robert Rodriguez, one of them. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it was a, it was really a shame that that show didn't have more success than it did or more whatever. Um, I know that the people that made that show had just done the Hatfields and McCoys with Paxton and it had been a smash success. And, and I remember that the sentiment was this one's going to be just as good, if not better. And um, you, you can't bet like that at Vegas, though, or at Hollywood. Um, something special comes around once in a while, and it is what it is. I can tell you this. We had a great time on Texas Rising and um, made a lot of new friends. And it was, it was really cool being all the way down in Durango, Mexico. At one of the nice, it was like the four seasons of, if you're in Durango, Mexico, uh, old Mexico, you know, big, this hotel, these big arches and courtyard and cosmopolitan Mexican food and just 
you know, for me, people ask me, like, what was your favorite movie to do? And it took me a long time before I realized what they're asking is like um, a shared experience. Like they watched the movie. Mm-hmm. So they're asking me what my favorite movie was. And I have realized, yeah, a lot. it's like from a, from a ticket buyer's point of view. But my answer was always and always has been like from the point of view of like actually filming it. Mm-hmm. And my experience on a lot of these films has been so life changing that it's, uh, it's hard to differentiate between the experience you had making it and then watching it. Like it took 15 years of seeing Starship Troopers. And I mind you, I didn't watch it all the time, mm-hmm. but it was on the 15th anniversary when I'd had a lot of separation from the film that I finally got the movie. And I was finally able to watch it as a narrative from top to bottom mm-hmm. because it was such an impressionistic film on my head from making it that, you know, we didn't shoot it in the order of the story. And it was a time in my life where I was so impressionable that that stuff just hit and sank. And so my memory was the order chronologically of us filming it. So when I watched the movie, it didn't make sense to me because we started, we started shooting the film like three quarters of the way through the second act was our first day. And we bounced all over the place so much with this, with the schedule on that movie. I can't believe that they, they came up with a schedule like that. Um, but yeah, so, so my experience on Texas rising was fantastic. Um, and working with Roland Joffe was incredible. It was a delight. I think he got a, a few really great performances out of me that I wouldn't have maybe come to without him. I don't, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a teamwork thing. So it's hard to say, but uh, the time when the horse stopped dead during the big gallop um, and retreat from the Mexicans, when they started shooting the cannons and the cannons blew off and the, the horse didn't know the cannons were going to go off. And so they got these bomb pots I'm, you know, I ride to my mark, which I'm looking right into camera. And then it's like, okay, the Mexicans come over the, over the ridge line. And then, so we're all supposed to turn around and haul ass back in the other direction to retreat on on the horse, which we do. And I did. Um, And then I'm going along for an eighth of a mile. And then this bomb pot goes off in the ground, this huge dust cloud and big explosion. And the horse is this big ass giant horse and just stops. We're going really fast. Mm-hmm. So I just, the, the saddle had no horn. It was not like a Western saddle. It was just like a smooth pad, mm-hmm. like a dressage saddle, you know? And right. um, man, that thing stopped and I slid right up onto that horse's neck. And then he reared up and head butted me and I got a concussion. <laughs> <laughs> and then he took oh. off running and then the stunt guys came and flanked me on both sides and so there's three horses running at full gallop and then they they're able to get my horse to slow down and i'm i'm the whole world is yellow to me and i'm seeing stars and um and they finally get him to slow down and stop and then 
I hop over onto the back of the stunt guy's horse and then we slow down and then I get off. And then I thought, okay, I'm fine. I'll, I'll brush this off. I'm all good. And the stunt coordinator comes over and he's, he's looking at me like he's talking to some accident victim that's been in a car crash. And, and I'm like, I'm fine, man. Let's go again. He's like, no, why don't you just sit down for a second? I'm like, really? I'm okay. Except for the fact that the whole world is yellow. And he's like, yeah, let's just, let's just sit you down for a second. And uh, so I told the story later to some of the other stunt guys that weren't, uh, you know, at the hotel that night, to some of the guys that weren't there. They were my friends. And, uh, and the one guy turns to the other guy, he goes, yeah, well, that's what you get when you're riding horses that, that ain't trained yet, you know? <laughs> and so these guys, the, the, the wranglers down there in Durango, they just go out and collect these horses. <laughs> that have never had a rider on them. And they're like, here you go. Just, you just hop on. <laughs> so that was, that was, that was an experience riding an unbroken horse. Yeah. <laughs> Something else. So usually when I do a podcast and I'm going to interview a guest, I like to put out a questionnaire, you know, a fan questionnaire, you know, saying, Hey fans, I got this actor on my show. Uh, do you have any questions for him? So we're going to take a few fan questions. Okay. Reese Koski asks, what was your favorite part about filming and being a part of Stranger Things? Uh, I think my favorite part was the end, the end result of it, which is the premiere and the party. Um, it was such a big hullabaloo, uh, you know, and I don't even know, not only necessarily like the premiere and the party uh, I mean, uh, just finding out that I was booked on the show was very exciting. And it's one of those things where I, I kept saying to myself, I, I can't believe I'm doing Stranger Things. This is amazing. It's a huge show. And I had built it up in my head very big. So I was, you know, I wouldn't have thought I would book a show like that in a million years. So, yeah. Uh, it was uh, it was I mean, it was just so exciting and and for me what gets exciting is what are we going to do next with this you know like what how, how's it all going to look how's it going to be to film and I get to meet all those kids that are in the movie that's great my daughter's going to flip out and go nuts and it's going to you know um, and the interesting thing was though it was the most awkward filming experience that I've ever had. Um, They've, they've got it down like it's like a machine. It's not like doing any other project. When I was doing my stuff, the only people that I saw were the immediate crew around me. And this pre-COVID, by the way. Mm -hmm. The immediate people around me and the immediate crew around me, but nobody else. Like usually doing a film or a TV series, a lot of times, really, it's, you know, a lot of times it's, it's like uh, being at summer camp. And there'll be people hanging out in their director's chairs or snack bar or whatever that aren't in the scene that you're in. Um, and they're waiting for their turn, right? Mm -hmm. And the way they did my stuff was they took everything that I like. Okay, so they say I was in two episodes and I was throughout the episodes like a few times. They took everything I was in and condensed it all down to where it was all just my stuff. So it was really just 
Jake centric and they shot, they basically were just shooting me out in two days. So I'd fly down there. A lot of times it was one day I would fly down there and then they would work me like 18 hours and I'd get done. I'd go back to the hotel. I'd go to sleep. I'd wake up, catch a plane and go home. So I was only gone for a day, but yet I did two full episodes in that time. So it's a lot of work. And I wasn't just hanging around on the set with the kids and, hey, what's up, Will and Gaten and Caleb? And no, it, it wasn't, wasn't that at all. I met everybody at the table read and had no idea that, like, I would never see David Harbour again. I've never seen Winona again. I had no idea that, like, it was going to be so secular, so individual. So, yeah. And then the party and the premiere was outrageous and the hype and all that stuff. But um, so it was exciting from that level. I'd never worked on a show that was uh, such a big cultural deal before I got there. With a movie, nobody has seen it yet. There's no hype yet. No, and, I mean, unless it's a sequel. Mm-hmm. Like with Starship Troopers, we're just kids out there doing a movie. And then, you know, you get done doing the movie and nobody knows or gives a hoot. And a year later, the movie comes out. And a few people saw it. And, oh, okay, cool. Well, now with Stranger Things, the day that Carrie and I were flying to Georgia to go do the table read, they hit social media on all outlets and all platforms. And so Carrie leans over and he's like, Jake, look, we're trending in the UK. <laughs> like we were the top stories. And I'm like, holy cow, like the rest of the world knows as we're embarking. And that's not a normal thing at all. So it was exciting. It was exciting. I'm glad I got to be a part of it. It was great. Arek <clears throat> Gerza Gorak asks and and Arak, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. I think it's probably Eric. Uh, it's Arak, A-R-E-K, and then Gazork. Yeah, I knew it when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I had, there was a kid in my class, in my grade, and his name was Eric, and it was A-R-E-K. I believe it's a Nordic spelling. Oh, okay. He wants to know about your possible return to the role of Ace in a Starship Troopers streaming TV series. Uh, how would he like to portray the, this character these days, and would he be interested in fighting bugs again? Oh, I think Ace would would be an older uh, general by now. And uh, as you know, in the Starship Troopers world, people didn't live all that long. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Ace would be a general by now, working at you know in uh, in the in the rear, as they say in the military, you know, in the uh, working in uh, logistics or something like that. And uh, no, Ace would not be running around chasing bugs. Ace has done his bug chasing. <laughs> uh, B1GM4NCA asks, do you and your dad randomly scream at each other over Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> All the time. All the time. <laughs> yeah, it just, uh, it's the way things are. Just, ah! Big, Does he throw the peas and mashed potatoes at you and everything? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the way he does that. He makes well, a grand gesture, everything he does. 
<laughs> now, before we end this interview, can you leave us with some words of wisdom? Oh. If you want to do with your life what I have done with my life, you won't be able to do it the way in which that I've done it because the world has changed. If you would like to be an actor and you would like to have those experiences, I would highly suggest you get a degree in finance and you and, and English. And beyond that, I would say, with your two degrees, become a producer, make your movie, write something with friends or get a project and make it, act in it and put it up on YouTube or whatever. Um, that is the new way of getting yourself seen. It's uh, the way that I entered the industry is archaic, dinosauric, long gone. But uh, words of wisdom would be, if you want to be an actor, get a degree in English and finance first, have a backup career in place, have a solid day job, but hang on to your dreams and never give up. That's great advice. Right on. Well, Jake, thank you so much for being my guest today. Uh, you've been a wonderful guest, and I think my fans will really dig this episode. Oh, well, thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk about oneself, right? <laughs> yes, it is. All right. <laughs> Have a good one, Jake. All right. Thank you. You too. Have a great night. Bye. Well, that wraps it up for our interview with Jake Busey. If you're a fan of Jake's and you love Westerns, then you might want to check out his new movie entitled A Tale of Two Guns. It is a Western where he stars alongside such actors as Tom Berenger, Danny Trejo, Judd Nelson, Jeff Fahey, and even Jake's Starship Troopers co-star, Casper Van Dien. It is available on DVD, Blu-ray, and digital HD. So if you want to see a Starship Troopers reunion with Jake and Casper, you can do so by purchasing a physical or digital copy of the film through Amazon at a very affordable price. Now, before we end this episode, I just want to remind you that if you love the show and you want us to grow in popularity, you can help us do that by rating and reviewing this podcast. You can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you stream and download podcasts from. You can even leave a review of our podcast on our website at whatacharacterpodcast.com. Just click on Rate Show and you'll be taken to a page where you can give your critique of the show. And while you're there, you can even donate to our podcast by clicking on the PayPal link and submitting your desired amount. And don't forget to subscribe to our email mailing list if you want to receive email alerts about upcoming shows or even receive email exclusive episodes of our show. You can do this by typing in your name and email address on the right side of the homepage and clicking on subscribe. Now, if you want to reach out to us, please feel free to do so. If you have any guest suggestions or you just want to tell us how great you think the show is, you can do so by sending us an email at westgrovemedia at gmail.com. You could even leave us a voice message on the show website by clicking on the microphone button on the bottom right and recording a message. And please subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you stream and download podcasts from. 
And if you watch us on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And hey, if you're watching this on YouTube right now, please give this video a like. All in all, your support will definitely help us not only make the podcast successful, but it will be greatly appreciated as well. Anyway, that about does it for this episode of What a Character. Join us next week for my interview with Robert Davi. In our interview, Mr. Davi will talk about how he made his feature debut alongside Frank Sinatra, how he got involved with a member of Bulgarian royalty, and why Italian-Americans are underrepresented in Hollywood. It's all that and more on next week's episode of What a Character. Thank you for listening and take it easy. Bye. Anyway, all you gotta do is push a button. Sir, cease fire. Stand on that wall, trooper. Put your hand on that wall. Push a button if you disable his hand. <laughs>